so um, yeah, so I'm I'm working on this new book, which I've talked about, I've been talking about uh, for a while, and it's called Living Kindness: Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. And Living Kindness is meant to be a play on the Buddhist word Loving Kindness. Uh, obviously, if that title hopefully gives you the idea that it's it's meant to be sort of beyond just the idea of having a feeling or sending love, but actually um, how that functions in the world, how we live live that practice. Um, and and I've intentionally uh, kept that the book from being a recovery book, um, partly just because I want to reach. Uh, the broader Buddhist community, because they don't tend to pay attention to me, because they figure I'm one of them, and they don't want to be associated with them unless they are one of them, or us, or anyway. So, um, but uh, it's clearly a topic that's really relevant to recovery, and um, you know when we. The practice of loving kindness, which has really become really central uh, to Western Buddhism in a way that it wasn't when I started to practice. Um, I started this practice uh, back in uh, 1980. And I learned loving kindness meditation, but it was kind of uh, like a cherry on top practice. You would do at the end of a retreat or at the end of a class. And in 1995, um, Sharon Salzberg published her book, Loving Kindness, which really revolutionized Western Buddhism. Uh, it, it really brought that practice into the forefront and popularized it. And many teachers who were already working with that uh, started to expand that teaching. And now, uh, I don't know that there were many, like, specifically loving-kindness retreats before that. I don't recall that being very common, but now it's very common. Uh, and I think that has really been an important kind of balancing with the, what we call insight meditation, which is essentially mindfulness, which has more of a dry, just kind of observational quality to it. Whereas loving-kindness is kind of bringing more of an intentional effort uh, to be kind, to evoke these qualities in ourselves, and to bring that attitude into the world. So there's more, I would say, kind of active intentionality in loving-kindness practice. The initial stage, as it's taught, of loving-kindness is to practice loving-kindness for yourself. And this comes out of something, a, a teaching that is called the commentary. It wasn't, the, the way loving kindness is taught isn't based on something the Buddha taught, but something that was developed later on in what's called the Vasudhimaga, which is a commentary from the 5th century. Uh, don't let me get too far into the weeds with the technical stuff, but uh, just to give a little context. So, the Buddha was more general in the way he talked about loving-kindness, kind of radiating it, and there's some key phrases he had. But in the Vasudhimaga, they developed this system, which is a very organized, very methodical, a 
approach, which is what uh, Sharon Salzberg's book was kind of uh, uh, describing, although it's much more, uh, her book is very, you know, filled with stories and, and very readable. But the initial phase is to practice loving kindness for yourself. And this turns out to be rather difficult for a lot of people. Initially, when we're asked, okay, sit down now and breathe and say to yourself, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, or whatever phrases uh, are comfortable for you. And then just keep repeating that and trying to feel a sense of love inside yourself. So what often happens is that when people turn inward and look at what's inside themselves, they don't find it to be very lovable. And so their feeling, because they're either you know they're depressed or they're you know, have some shame or guilt or they don't feel like they live up to some level that they think they should, you know, they're measuring yourself against some invisible standard that we carry in our mind. They think, oh, God, you know, I can't give myself love. I don't deserve it. But that's not quite what the practice is asking you to do. I think there's a critical shift that has to happen. First, let me talk, though, about uh, self-hatred, if you will. Um, and, and specifically, since we're here in a recovery group, addiction as self-hatred. Because... Addiction itself can be characterized as a disease of self-hatred. Just the way we treat ourselves with substance abuse is so harmful that that in itself is a kind of uh, cruelty and violence that we do to ourselves. What Part of our addiction is also our self-view, which is one of the reasons that we use, many of us, is to turn off the self-hatred, the thoughts that we're having about ourselves or our feelings of shame, our feelings of guilt. So what we see, what we can start to see is that Rather than thinking of, so, so if that's self-hatred, then, then um, if harming ourselves with substances, for instance, is self-hatred, then what's love? Well, this is where I think, this is like in a really important question to me. Um, and it's, it's kind of a corny question, what is love? But, it's one that I don't think we answer very well in our culture. You know, the word love is mixed up with sex, and then it gets stuck on to things like chocolate. Uh, you know. um, 
you know, or a TV show or something. And, you know, we love this something. I love that actor, you know. And so, you know, the word that in Buddhism is metta, M-E-T-T-A, and we don't have a word. Love is not actually an accurate translation. The English word love isn't an accurate translation of that, so we have to tag on kindness. So we call it loving kindness to make you know, okay, this isn't loving like, you know, sex or, you know, desire. It's kind love, which is kind of sad that we have to mention that love, you know, to make love kind. Like, okay, it says something about our culture. It's, it's the kind kind of love, you know what I mean? It's not the mean love. Okay. But we do know how people, you know, I love you, you know, <laughs> cling, grasp, control, right? So, if it's not that, then again, you know, what is love? Is it a feeling? You know, if you say, I love you, does that make someone else feel love? No. I mean, we probably, I don't know if everybody here has had their heart broken, but most of us probably have at some point in our lives, even if we were 12 years old at the time. We loved somebody who didn't love us back. So obviously, we can't actually give love to someone we can't give them the feeling and we can't get the feeling from them either when someone says I love you that might make you feel good or it might not you know I mean sometimes it's like creepy so that's not quite that right love isn't a feeling exactly it's a feeling within us but okay that's a part of it so this idea of self-hatred, I hate myself, okay, well, a bad feeling about myself. We also love things that are very difficult. Uh, many of you have probably heard me talk about my mild obsession with golf, uh, so I'll bring that in as an example. You wanted some sports there, Shane, so... You know, I realized I'm playing golf, you know, and I realized, like, I would say to people, I love golf, but it's really difficult. I have really difficult times with it, right? Okay, how about you love your child, right? Does that mean that it's always smooth and easy with your child? Of course not. Or you love your work. A lot of us love our work and, you know, battle and struggle with it. So, okay, there's something else about love that what we call love, there's a passion, there's a commitment, there's an engagement, but it's not always actually pleasant. <laughs> it can actually be painful. So, there's a there's a sutta in the in the Pali canon in the early Buddhist teachings that's often been used, it's been uh, 
kind of oversimplified. People say, oh, the Buddha said that there's nobody in the world who deserves love more than you. And so people kind of use that as a way of saying, you know, you should love yourself because the Buddha says you should love yourself. And, but if you look at the sutta, that's not actually what, what goes on in the sutta. There's a couple of characters uh, who show up in my book uh, once or twice. Uh, Queen Malika and King Pasanadi, two of my favorites uh, from the Pali Canon. And I'm not sure what was going on. It's this very short sutta, so it doesn't give any backstory. But I'm suspicious, as I often am, uh, of these stories that there is something going on in the background. But anyway, King, King Pasanadi says to Queen Malika, is there anybody in the world that you love more than yourself. Now, if somebody says that in our culture, it would be the question itself would be an insult, wouldn't it? Right? Do you love anybody as much as you love yourself? And Queen Malika quite proudly says no. So you know, because in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's testing her to see if she's she's going to say. Oh, I love you the most, you know, right? I mean, that's like the romantic version. Oh, I love you. Like, is that healthy? Well, I have my doubts. But anyway, she, she looks like she's pretty healthy. She says, no, there's nobody that I love more. And then she says to him, what about you? And King, pa- King Pasnati says, it's true of me too. There's no one that I love more. Well, this is kind of a weird thing. Okay, so they go to the Buddha And they say, you know, this is the conversation we had. And the Buddha goes, that's great. That's really, that's the way it should be. And and he says, that's true of everybody. Then the next thing he says disproves the fact that he just said that that's true of everybody. Because he says, anyone who doesn't love themselves, or, or anyone who... Loves No, he says, anyone who loves themselves will not harm another person. His logic being, if you know how much you love yourself, then you can assume that other people love themselves too. So you, why, you know, they love, you know, you, you wouldn't want to harm them. And, uh, you know, so we can also take from this if you don't love yourself, that you are likely to harm other people. Which again, as people in recovery, I hope you're all in recovery. I hope you're all well established in your recovery. In our addiction, we see that. Right? When we are in that life of self-hatred, we also harm others. So, I want to come back again to this question of what is love. I don't think I've answered it. So I'm going to give you my answer to that question. Or not my answer, but I'm going to show you what I think is meant by love, in this, in, uh, particularly in this sutta. I don't think that it means that Queen Malika and King Pasanadi and everyone else likes everything about themselves or that they feel great 
that they're bragging about themselves. I love myself because I'm so great. I think it's much more simple and fundamental than that. When we love ourselves, when we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink. When we're tired, we sleep. When we're sick, we rest, we take medicine. We take care of ourselves. That's love. If someone tries, no matter what you think about yourself, no matter how much you hate yourself, if somebody comes at you with a fist, you're probably not going to stand there and go, oh yeah, I deserve this, go ahead. You're probably going to instinctively avoid it, right? I think we're talking about something very instinctual, that all beings love themselves on this level, that we protect ourselves. And so the, the, to uh, make, make this claim uh, more, you know, claim a more Buddhist credibility for that claim, when the Buddha tells people they should love people, what he says is, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So he characterizes love, or loving kindness, or metta, as protecting. But that's what we do. So, using the image of a mother, a mother isn't always nice to her kids. A mother doesn't even always like her kids. But a mother always takes care of her kids and protects her kids. At least this, you know, the functioning mother. And, that, and that's what I think we're talking about when we're talking about love about caring for ourselves, taking care of ourselves. So you don't, when you, when you say, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, you don't have to think, I don't know, I was kind of a shit to that person, you know. I kind of screwed that up. I don't really deserve it. It's more like going to something more fundamental. And that is something that we connect with in this practice, is our just our gut level feeling. So when we're meditating, and you know, I, I usually bring in this quality of emotion, feeling emotion in your body. So when you connect with that, when you're breathing into that, you feel that, and if you feel some dukkha, you know, if you feel some sadness or anxiety or stress, that as you feel that, that these are the, this metta, is what you're bringing to that. You're bringing that sense of care to yourself. And it's not thinking about, oh, I feel bad, I deserve to be loved. It's feeling that suffering in the same way that if you feel a headache, you say, oh, I want to take some medicine. If you feel thirsty, you'd take a drink of water. You feel that suffering, you feel that dukkha, you want to bring kindness to yourself, just kindness. Metta, not a fancy, big deal, open your heart, you know, ah, everything's great. It's just this gentle quality of kindness toward ourselves. And I think that that's, for me, that makes this much more accessible, the idea of loving kindness towards myself. It's not about a story or trying to list all my positive attributes Okay, good. Yeah, I'm good enough to deserve this. It has nothing to do with that. 
it's also so it, it this is much more accessible i think as we've developed mindfulness because mindfulness already is a quality of observing and it's a certain stepping away from ego from the story from i and it's just looking and seeing what's in my mind oh there's those thoughts oh there's judgment there's fantasy there's you know yesterday there's tomorrow oh there's this sensations in my body okay oh there's a sound Oh, there's me thinking about the sound. Okay, we're just observing that. So then we can see, oh, that there's dukkha, that there's suffering. So how do we respond? That we naturally respond, just in the same way that a mother protects a child, naturally. You know, nobody has to say, oh, mom, I think you probably ought to take your child out of the street. You know, oh, right, good idea. That didn't occur to me. No, I mean, you see your child running in the street and you're on him. Boom. You know, it's just instinct. There's no, there's no planning. There's no thinking, oh, my child is so stupid for going into the street. Well, he'll get what he deserves. You know, then he'll learn. No, that's, you know, that's not love. That's not mother love, right? So in the same way to ourselves, we don't say, oh, uh, what's wrong with me that I'm having this feeling? And of course, we have those thoughts, right? But the loving kindness is a suggestion that that's not actually helpful and that, that we don't have to do that, that there's no use in that, that that's not loving ourselves. You're having a feeling that's, un, that's uncomfortable, that's painful. You just instinctively go to that. Oh, well, let me bring kindness to that. That's what I think starting this practice, loving kindness for myself is. It's going to that that feeling, and bringing just a sense of kindness. Again, this our practice of mindfulness trains us and actually gives us the tools for working in this way because it trains us in this observational way so that we can step back and look at our experience objectively rather than through the lens of I, interpreting everything through that lens. You know, the idea of self-hate is actually an interesting one. Um, The question that I would ask is, if you hate yourself, can you explain to me who is hating whom? And of course, this throws us back on the core Buddhist principle of not-self, that there isn't someone to hate and there isn't someone to to be the hater. That, that, that those are, you know, we're creating that sense of self. And then we're, and not only, you know, we create this sense of self, and then we tear it down and tell ourselves how bad it is. It's an interesting strategy for in life, right? You know, I make up this story and then I'm like, oh, man, I'm such a mess. You know, a- another... Another simple question to me is is this idea that um, am I, you know, if I look at the rest of the world and I think, you know, by and large, you know, people are okay. Like, like I can do loving kindness for other people, right? People will say that. I can do loving kindness for other people, but I can't do it for myself. Well, that's interesting. So you think that you are uniquely flawed. 
Everyone else, they're okay. But me, no, I don't deserve it. So interestingly, that's actually a form of egotism, right? I'm so bad. I'm especially bad. I mean, we see this in the program too, right? And this is like, oh, I'm a worse alcoholic than anybody, right? But it's just another way. So right view in, in Buddhism, this, this view of like examining what's true, right? That's kind of the, the core question that we're always asking in insight meditation. What is true? Is this true? Like, how can that be true? That, that everyone else deserves love and I don't. That, so that kind of, you know, you kind of throw that answer out. And so uh, I often say uh, that forgiveness and compassion are my companions in my practice. They're, that I try to keep them right beside me. So that as I'm sitting here and that thought comes up, that I, you know, why, and then I'm getting lost, and then I'm like, oh man, I'm not meditating right, I'm doing it wrong. It's like, oh, forgiveness, thank you. And it's like the, there was a talk in, in Berkeley, was it last week that was? Anyway, there, and there were a bunch of luminaries in the Dharma world, one of whom is Norman Fisher, the Zen teacher. He was handing out uh, forgiveness licenses. Yeah. <laughs> So you get you get one of these, and then you have the license to forgive yourself and others. Um, and so, uh, so there's forgiveness, and but there's also compassion because if we are really looking at what's happening, what we see is dukkha. What we see is pain. We see, rather than a story, it's just wow, this is painful. So you know, every time my mind wanders. If I really check in with it, I see that in some way, even if it's not like a negative thought, just the thinking itself is kind of agitating, you know, the mind is going off and, you know, and I come back and it's like, oh, God, I can feel the stress, my shoulders or my gut. It's like, oh, wow, I should bring some kindness into that, some compassion. So compassion, forgiveness, keep them, keep them close, you know, in your practice, in your life. So this is uh, the starting point of loving kindness. You know, and as, you know, the Buddha's approach to changing the world was to start with the individual. So there's kind of the two different philosophies that, oh, if we change, like uh, something like communism is kind of an idea that we're going to kind of go from the top down, right? We'll start, we'll create a system that will turn people into so that people will behave differently. And then what usually happens when you try to create a system that's going to change people is that the people change the system because people are driven by greed, hatred, and delusion unless they are trained, unless they are enlightened, at least in the general sense. So the Buddhist view is, no, we have to transform ourselves and that's how we transform the world. And if we're going to you know, give love to the world, if we're going to change, you know, bring about change in the world, um, we have to change ourselves. And if we're going to love the world and bring love into the world, then we have to love ourselves. So we're not going to get very far in this enterprise of practicing loving kindness for all beings until we're able to practice it towards ourselves. You might, you don't have to like yourself. You just have to love yourself. That's the practice.
Very simple. So those are my thoughts this evening. And uh, we have some time left if anybody has any thoughts of their own. Somebody in the back. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I was wondering if you could uh, talk about fear, um, just generally. Well, how it how it you know kind of fits into the whole thing, the yeah. whole self hatred thing. I know yeah. personally in my life, dealing with fear is kind of opened up a lot of doors and whatnot. I was wondering if you could. Yeah, I'll try. Um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the at least the mythology of how the Buddha originally taught loving kindness was that his monks, a group of monks went into the forest and they got scared of these spirits you know, in the forest. And so they came back to the Buddha and said, like, we were, you know, there were these nasty tree spirits and uh, we couldn't meditate. So he said, well, do this, send them loving kindness. So the practice of loving kindness was originally an antidote for fear. Um, and clearly, you know, f fear is very often at the root of hatred, right? Because that fear has an instinctual function to protect us from danger. That's why it's there, right? And when... Uh, if we're in danger, what we do typically is, you know, it's kind of fight or flight, right? Or the instincts. And so the fight gets expressed with anger, which is why I believe that when someone cuts you off on the highway, we get angry because we're afraid, right? You get cut off and you're in danger. You know, and but you don't go. Oh my God, I'm so scared. You you get angry because it's that protective mechanism. Um, you just asked me to talk about it, so I'm talking about it. I'm not giving you any answers necessarily, but uh, but I think that that it. This is like how we can sort of examine it is to try to get down into the visceral experience. Like, what does this feel like? And be with it and see what it's triggering, you know, what's coming out of it. And, of course, then we can try to, you know, drill, drill down deeper to see what's at the root of that fear, of that particular fear. You know, we, obviously, there are a lot of kind of, I don't know, there are a lot, but there are some kind of core fears. You know, and the, the fundamental fear is the fear of death. So even something like being hungry the discomfort in hunger is, you know, fear of death in some sense. You know, if you can't breathe for a moment, that's the fear that comes up is fear of death. I don't know if that's helpful, but it's, again, just sort of the stuff that we see. We start to, you know, get down to these kind of root elements of these experiences. And typically, I mean, the idea of right view is that when we see things clearly, 
they aren't so disturbing. When we see what is triggering fear, what's triggering anger, or what's triggering sadness, that we're able to hold it then. It's not this in this shadow, this kind of uh, mysterious or frightening shadow to us. It's it's okay. That's that's natural. So I don't, uh, you know, I don't I don't think fear isn't. Uh, there's nothing wrong with fear. Right? It's as I say, it's got this function, but like with addiction, that it can become this obsession. Right? It can become, uh, you know just caught up in always worrying about you know money or relationships or uh, what else what else do we worry about stuff um, so I don't know don't have a bigger answer than that thank you Could you say a little bit more of, uh, about the, the role of the uh, inner critic in both individually as well as the <laughs> bigger world? Hmm. Well, I'm not a fan of that term because it really reifies something that doesn't really exist. I mean, I think it's helpful kind of as a transitional concept <laughs> that is to say to, to first of all realize all oh, right there's like kind of this voice in me that's always saying this negative stuff but then if we get too into like well what do i do with that like if we reify it then it's like we have to get rid of it or we have to fight with it or we have to somehow you know, flush it out of there. And so I think, first of all, to see what are we talking about when we're talking about an inner critic, we're talking about certain types of thoughts, probably repetitive, very conditioned. That is to say, they came about through certain, typically early life experiences, and we have uh, solidified them by repeating them over and over to, so that the the thoughts have moved from just being thoughts into beliefs, you know, right? So, you know, we always have thoughts going through our minds, but, you know, when we step back, we see that certain ones are founded in a more of a belief system that's kind of uh, global, uh, kind of globalized, so that then that becomes like, I'm a bad person or I'm a loser or whatever the negative thing is that's the, the overarching story. And then all those particular thoughts, you know, are in there with that, feeding that. So, you know, the practice of mindfulness meditation is the antidote to that, right? It's the starting point of the antidote, which is to see that it's just words, thoughts in the mind. That's the starting point, right? Like, oh, there I go, now I come back. Okay, then as we do that, we start to see after a while, wow, I keep going there. Huh. So that gets us, you know, sort of questioning what that's about. So maybe we spend some time in therapy working on that 
in meditation, we're not so much trying to solve it or fix it. We're still just kind of observing. But we go as we go further into a meditative exploration, we start to see process. We start to see what when do those thoughts arise? Yeah, what are the triggers for those thoughts? Oh, what what are the roots of those thoughts? So we're, again, kind of seeing them. Then uh, seeing more kind of elements of them. We're deconstructing them and what they're about. And we see what they, what they set off, the, the, the feelings that come along with the thoughts. And then we notice how the feelings then trigger more thoughts, and we see these cycles. And then there's the, the sort of cognitive... The, you know, what, what they do in cognitive therapy, which is the questioning of the thoughts, which is also part of right view, which is, is this true? You know, and that's, and that I think is when we really get, this is when we really take the torch to the, that your inner critic is like, you are lying to me. You know, when we can see that's just not true, but that it takes some time to get to that place, right? It takes some disconnection and mindfulness. One of the, paradoxes of mindfulness is that in one sense it makes us more intimate with our experience but in another sense it allows us to step away from it so this is kind of the paradox of mindfulness and that stepping away is what allows us to at some point see oh those aren't really me those aren't actually even true and now they're really losing their power you know and then they're just like up you know bird chirping outside the window you know, just a crow, like it's an annoying sound. You know, and and uh, you know, at, at that point, I think it you you don't believe it anymore. You don't believe that there's anybody in there, or that uh, or that it's true. And it and you know, and you fall in and out of that awareness because we're imperfect, and it and that deep conditioning is very difficult to uproot it. I mean, that's step six and seven in the 12 steps. Um, we humbly ask God to remove the shortcomings, right? It's, that's, the, that's the work that we, it says in the 12 and 12, we have to keep going back and doing it over and over. It's not uh, something that we, okay, I've got it figured out, I'm done. Yeah, that, it's lurking there. It's like, like they say the disease is doing push-ups in the other room, right? It's like, and, and, you know, it comes back again in your moments of vulnerability and, and hopefully, you know, you've got the tools then to work with it. That's helpful. It's helpful to me. And that's why I like questions, because it kept me to think about things that I haven't thought about. This isn't going to be like one of those comments like after an article in the, on the internet, you know, or Facebook. Yeah, that me up. I, you know, how can I follow that? Um, I really like the way that you normalized loving kindness for ourselves mm. as not being some kind of out there woo-woo kind of new age concept, but something that's always been here in the world and it's just really really very natural to eat when you're hungry to drink when you're thirsty to rest when you're tired and to take medicine to take care of yourself when you're sick 
and the idea that, that all of that stuff is being loving towards ourselves so that we can, we can when we're doing loving kindness meditation, we can remember that, that, oh yeah, I do actually yeah. love myself, yeah. despite whatever crazed out kind of weird, quote unquote, inner critic thinking that I've got rattling around in the back of my head based on some bullshit that I told myself between the ages of 8 and 12. Yeah. So not only is it not true, it's coming from an 8 or 12-year-old little boy. Uninformed. Who, an uninformed mind. Yeah. Really made up some stupid shit about myself. <laughs> and it keeps on rattling around back there. Yeah. As years go by and my training goes forward, that voice gets a little bit quieter and a little bit quieter. And I've gotten permission from one of my teachers, if it gets too loud, to tell it to shut the fuck up. Uh-huh. To just do that. Yeah. You know, I don't have to go to war with it. I can right. just, not right yeah. now. Yeah. But it's, I'm, that, that idea that, you, that you're, you're normalizing it was beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I, you know, my my work, you know, my writing and my teaching is really. When I said before, you know, I have my own questions. That's, I, you know, I often I get an idea of something that I think I know something about, and then I start to write it, and I realize, well, I haven't really figured this out, have I? And, you know, I was really reflecting on this. And I, I, I'm glad you appreciate that because I felt like that was a real breakthrough for me when I had this very simple realization. Like, I kept, like, what does loving myself mean exactly? And, and, but it was kind of putting together these things the Buddha had said and Malika and, and oh, that's it. And that's why... You know, famously, the Dalai Lama was asked when he first came to the West, like, well, by somebody, in fact, I think it might have been, it was, I think it might have been Sylvia Borstein who asked him, well, do you have any advice for people how to deal with self-hatred? And the Dalai Lama and, the, and his translator were like, apparently like, well, could you explain that some more? And finally, he was just like, he didn't understand it, and, and his response, I think, was something like, don't do that. <laughs> Why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's not a concept that kind of makes sense in, out of that culture, out of a Buddhist culture. But I don't think it's because they think they're so great. You know, I don't think it's about everybody loves me because I'm so special. I think it's just because they don't think of love in the terms that we do. But I don't know. I haven't had a chance to ask Dolly. I know, right, right. So, right, so, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is, right, that, that it's, there's, we have to accept our imperfection, you know. 
And if we can't accept our imperfection, we're really going to have a tough time in the world, you know? And, and people do this, right? I mean, that's a very common thing. You know, people get angry with themselves for being imperfect, which is a really kind of weird thing. Like, have you ever seen a perfect person? It's one of the reasons I kind of back away from... It's, it's, even seeing the Buddha as perfect, you know, I, I actually try to, like, see if there's any holes I can poke in the Buddha in a very kind way, you know, but just kind of like, well, he left his wife and son on the night his son was born. I mean, he's a, you know, a deadbeat dad. And uh, he's homeless, you know. And he seems to be proud of the fact that he's homeless, you know. Wanders around, you know. Um, and when, and when uh, he got enlightened, he was like, well, pff, nobody's going to understand this. So it seems like he's a little arrogant, you know. It's kind of like, well, dude, you know. Tried to kill himself. Like, you know, he's anorexic. Right, so he he recovered from that, but I mean, still, he might need a program. I mean, I don't know if he's, you know, really worked the steps around his anorexia, you know. So, I mean, it is one of the things that we do in spirituality. You know, we make Jesus can't be human; he has to be the Son of God, instead of like. He was really just a good teacher, you know. He had his good days and his bad days, you know. And I think some days the, the loaves and fishes were a little stale, you know. The fish started to stink. I mean, just a bad day at the in Galilee, you know. But uh, no, we have to like put him up so high that, yeah, and and then that becomes a way that we compare ourselves and. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I will say it's one of the reasons I probably have not been that drawn to Asian teachers because the, a lot of, uh, now we should turn the recorder off because I might say something unskillful. I don't want this to go beyond here. You know, the, it's really the training. You're trained in Asia to, and, and this actually makes sense, to be a representative of the Buddha. To be a, when you're teaching, you're you know you're up there. I mean, this is kind of the Catholic Church. They do the same thing with the priests. When you're up there, you're like you know you're the the connection between God and and man. And so you know, as a Buddhist teacher, you know you're supposed to be kind of a Buddha and sort of show that rather than talking about your failings. Um, and because of my own, you know, issues. Dealing with teachers like that early in my practice, for a long time I was always comparing myself. Oh, I could never be as enlightened as, you know, them. Or, you know, I'm, I'm just a loser, not, and not advanced enough. And you know, I came to see that uh, that wasn't helpful. And it probably, probably wasn't even true. Um, so it's one of the reasons that I act like a jerk when I'm teaching, so that people can be like, well, you know, at least I'm not as messed up as that guy. You know? 
That was an exaggeration. I, I didn't mean it quite that way, but yeah, I think we go till nine fifteen. Yeah. See, I know because that one night I stopped at nine, and I was just ready, you know, thinking before. Oh, it's a, but no, we go seven fifteen to nine fifteen, whether you like it or not. Um, thank you. Um, so I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this. I haven't even developed the question. It's just kind Dive of amorphous in. thoughts at this point. Um, but so much, you open so much when you talk about love connected with the addict, love and addiction. I mean, there are libraries and volumes. It's voluminous, yeah. right? Um, and I, I, I did like what you said about the addict, just the, the act of engaging in the addictive behavior is not loving. It's a form of hatred. Yeah. Just doing that to ourselves. And that, again, connected with the work I'm doing in Al-Anon as yeah. a parent. So, again, we see that child of ours in the street, and it's automatic. We go and rescue the child. Yeah. It's automatic. It's what we do because we love the child. Yeah. But then there's some, at some point... That's not why you're in Al-Anon, though. That's not why I'm in Al-Anon, <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm in Al-Anon because I'm, I don't want to go in the street, right? I'm done with the street. So then at some point, there is that detachment with love. Yeah. We still love the addict. Yeah. We still the loving kindness whether he or she is practicing that for themselves or not. Yep. But that loving kindness, we love ourselves. That's why we're not going in the street. Right. We don't want them to be in the street. Mm -hmm. We sure wish they weren't. And we would support them if they came to us perhaps and said, hey, how do I yeah. get out of the street? Right. Well, right. Only you can get out of the street. Yeah. But if you want some ideas, if you're asking, yeah. are you asking? Right. You know? yeah. Yeah. And it's that love, yeah. love and addiction. Yeah. It's, it's, it's um, you know, Kevin, it's great stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's rich. It is so much there. Uh, so thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure where I'm going with well, this. Well, I, I was thinking yeah. about, as I was preparing this talk, I was thinking about I don't often really bring in too much about Al-Anon and Coda, the, but uh, you know, I was thinking about that how those when we are caught up in codependent behavior, uh, that again, it's a case where we are saying that we are not okay unless this other person is okay, you know, so that. This is a form of, it's not, maybe self-hatred is a too strong a term, but it's not, you know, it's not caring for ourselves. It's feeling that we have to, that it's more important to care for someone else than it is to care for ourselves. And, that, and that that's kind of the, the self-hatred aspect of that condition. And, and 
just as you're saying, when particularly when the person that we love is an addict, what it means to care for them, which is kind of how I'm almost defining love, is like caring for someone. What it means to care for them doesn't necessarily mean what we would typically think caring for somebody means. It might mean the opposite of that, right? Yeah. It, it means not giving them money, not taking them into, under your roof. It's, it's, uh, which, which, again, talking about love, as I was talking about love, how love can be very difficult, well, that's about the most difficult possible form of love, where we just our heart breaks and all we want is for our child to be okay. And this is like, of the, of the people that I hear from through email, through just random emails, there are more nowadays that are that in that position, parents, than, than anyone. And it's just heartbreaking. There just is no... We can, our, all our instinct, we have to restrain our, our instinct. And, uh, you know, it's certainly... Uh, one of the most difficult things, but that's why we have to question what is love. You know? And in different situations, it can look very different. You know? Thanks. And I hope your child figures it out. You know? Back there, Shane. You know, I have a mother who's an active addict, an alcoholic, and I'm two months sober. And how do I, what I see is protection. What I got from is how do I, with my own self-love, protect myself from the abusive mother who's Mm. not taking care of me. You know what I mean? Who's actually harming me. So if you can. Oh, I'm not big on advice. Um, but um, but certainly an interesting thing to reflect on. Um, and it's not uncommon that people get into recovery and realize that there are dysfunctional relationships in their family. Um, and it's also not uncommon for people to decide that um, no that no relationship is the healthiest one with someone who's not able to change or willing to change. Um, I, I'm not advising that. I'm just pointing out that that's one of the options which sometimes is doesn't occur to us when we feel we're like trapped in an abusive relationship that, oh, it actually is possible to step out of that. Um, Again, really difficult (laughs) uh, because of those connections. Um, But it's also possible, you know, short of that, um, you know, being newly sober, you don't know how things are going to unfold. And one of the things that we do as sober people is that we 
show other people another possibility. And we show them, we show them another version of ourselves. <laughs> um, and we're able to, and when we aren't getting pulled into the old dance, then sometimes that the other the other person the if we'll say the abuser but it's a strong term but you know that person who hasn't gotten sober isn't you know suddenly is is looking at a different picture you know they're all of a sudden they're not getting what they want out of it which all kinds of things can happen from that something good can come out of that something even worse can come out of that that they they get more frustrated because they're not getting the 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 feedback that they're used to um, but uh you know certainly before one separates you would want to kind of see what happens if if you can bring a kind of equanimity like a non-reactive and non-engaged attitude a caring attitude and compassionate attitude, right? Up to the up to a point, and it's when it's you know, until it starts to be really you know, harmful for you. But you know, trying to bring compassion, forgiveness, non-reactivity, so that you know, there's the famous story where the the Brahmin is pacing up in front of the back and forth in front of the Buddha, complaining about his teachings and and yelling at him and the Buddha says after a while like okay are you done and the Buddha's like says okay if you if someone comes to your house and you offer them food and they don't accept the food who does the food belong to well it belongs to me because they haven't taken it and the Buddha says that's the same with me with your anger you know you're trying to give it to me I'm not taking it so you can keep it you know, so if we can kind of bring that attitude to somebody rather than reacting and jumping in, then they might be forced to look at themselves for once. Because usually in those dysfunctional relationships, it's all about pointing fingers. And when you're forced to look at yourself, you know, either you get more pissed off or you actually go, oh, maybe I should change. So that's my advice. Which I don't give. Yeah. Uh, where's the, what? It's nine ten. One more question. This is going to be a really short one. I'm a simple man with simple needs. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I guess the piece that comes up for me is uh, something that I can't really explain because you, you mentioned it's partially like um, in as our mindfulness practice develops, compassion develops naturally. Like people used to say, oh, can you feel some compassion for yourself for having that experience or feeling that way in the past and I would just be like fuck you what are you talking about like I hate myself you know like there's no like it just sounded like they were like can you fly away from that feeling you know it's just an yeah. impossible idea 
But I noticed that as my mindfulness practice develops, compassion develops naturally. And I don't know if you could, if there's any comment on that. Oh, I mean, it's, no, like the, uh, it's like the, uh, maybe the observer and the fact that I'm more easily able to love other people. Oh, you're asking so me to explain why that happens? Yeah. Uh, that no, doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could talk no, about I, it, I, but, I but yeah. It. I love that it happens. I don't care. What right. And that's one of the really... Uh, precious things about mindfulness and, and why it's one of the reasons I don't actually teach a whole lot of loving kindness meditation because I find that as you soften and get more awake and just alive to the world the heart opens um, so yeah it's it's a natural expression of of letting go basically of, of non-clinging to self and to story. And, and I attribute it to, I mean, I call it human nature, basically. You know, I think fundamentally, this is, and this is the optimistic side of Buddhism, that the, the, and it's not based on a belief, it's believed on the, it's based on the experience, but the, the teaching is that, you know, that's what, when people talk about Buddha nature, that's what they're talking about, how fundamentally we are good. Um, except for, you know, the bad people. But other than that, we're good. So let's, we'll close with a, a few moments of loving kindness, and uh, maybe we can even do a little bit for ourselves. You know, just going back inside and breathing. Breathing because your body needs oxygen. You might also acknowledge that the fact that you came here tonight was an act of love towards yourself. Caring for yourself. Caring for your spiritual condition. And yes, as we come to see and feel our own self-love, our own self-care, And we let go of ideas about who we are, ideas of separateness. We see our connection with all beings, with all that is. And as we care for ourselves, so we care for all beings, for all that is. We care for humans and animals, plants and rocks, for the earth and the air, for the birds and the insects.
all beings want happiness. All beings want love. May all beings find happiness, peace, love. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you so much for coming. Hope I'll see you. I will, for those in the East Bay, I have a monthly class over there similar to this, the fourth Tuesday at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. All my events are on my website, kevingriffin.net. So if you're interested, come and see me again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.